just as we continue in our study of Titus, we're going through, Phil uh, concluded verses 8 and 9 last week about the elder qualifications and some of those things. And I want us to kind of read back through that real quickly for context purposes. But our verses this morning will be, our focus, our text will be Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through uh, 14. So let me pray for us and then we'll read this and, and get into it. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, God. I do thank you for your word. Lord, I praise you that you did not leave us, Lord, uh, wandering in the dark, Lord, but you gave us your word as a light to our feet and a lamp into our path, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've, Lord, um, called us um, into your fellowship, Lord, and are conforming us into the image of Christ, Lord. And I thank you for all that you do, God. I pray that you would be exalted and lifted up this morning, Lord. I pray that your light would, Lord, be um shine bright and bring you glory. Lord, I pray that we would all draw near to you, Lord, um, by your spirit, Lord, as we gather around your word and treasure Christ, Lord. Let only truth um, flow from my lips this morning, Lord. Keep me from folly. And Lord, just uh, grant us humility, Lord, in all things to honor Christ more, Lord. Forgive me of my sins now. We thank you for this day. In Christ's name, we ask all this. Amen. If you don't mind um, standing for the reading, and I'm going to read just a few verses before and uh, right after here, just again for context purposes. So as we've been going through the book of Titus, I'll start in verse 4 here as Paul is kind of giving the pre uh, the purpose for this letter that he's writing to Titus. In verse 4, starting in chapter 1, he says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You may be seated. So again, as we pick up here in our text, starting in verses 10, um, piggybacking off of what Phil finished up last week for us, verses 8 and 9, as I started to prepare for this, looking at verse 10, as he begins to, to, to talk about some things, it's almost like he's charting a new thought. But again, the word for, and Blake has made this point several times, and so has Phil, that we have to look at the conjunctions. And when we see a for, he's tying it to a previous thought. So as he says in verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. This for points us to the reason, in my opinion, one of the main reasons for elders. He's given us the, uh, the qualification of elders, and he's made it very clear to Titus that this is important because this is why he left him in Crete to do this and to put these men in place. And here I believe Paul addresses 
a, a primary purpose for this, this um, task. He says, for this, this points us to one of the reasons it is to refute false teaching. This is not a problem that was isolated to the Christians in the church of Crete, but something that is still a very real and present problem in our in today, in our country, in our city, in our town, in the world. We see this problem, false teachers infiltrating God's church. If we look at Matthew 7, Jesus speaking himself, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, being the false teachers, by their fruits. Jesus warns his people about the reality of false teachers. And taking away from a, some, a Vodibachum sermon on this very text, he says he's warning his people. The context here, Jesus' words are very, very deliberate. He says, they'll come to you in sheep's clothing. Jesus has identified himself to his disciples as what? The shepherd. He's telling them they're going to come dressed looking just like you. They're going to come in your uniform. They're going to look like you. They're going to smell like you. You'll know them by what is inside them, by their actions, the fruits that they bear. You will recognize them not based on appearance, but based on action, based on fruit. So he's telling them we have to be looking at, at, at the lifestyle. And going back to Titus, Paul has gone through these qualifications, these fruits that are to already be present in the elder, above reproach, able to teach correction in sound doctrine, these different things. If we compare this with our Titus text for the qualification of elders, Paul first, before he goes into the things that an elder must begin doing to refute this false teaching, he first addresses what? These qualifications, these characteristics, going back to Jesus' here, he's, I would compare them synonymously with the fruits of the elder. So we have to be sure that these qualifications are in place. Otherwise, there's no benefit in having a false teacher refute a false teacher. You're just piling falsehood on top of falsehood and lie on top of lie. So we have to comp uh, compare this. It's very similarly also in the text and uh, the qualifications that Paul lists in First Timothy. Jesus states that these teachers are known by their works. We also see Paul addressing this. Again, the presence of false teachers. If we look at Acts chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. There's a few verses here. We're going to read Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 35. This is Paul speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders before his departure. He says, starting in verse 28, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves, to the elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among the, all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. 
You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If we go back to our text here, he says in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We could preach sermons on just the text from Acts chapter 20 here about this as far as the topic. But for today's purposes, let's focus on Paul's awareness of the dangers and the warning that he is giving to them that there are going to be ravenous wolves coming in to destroy, make shipwreck of people's faith if possible. And he's addressing that again here and even giving a conclusion as to why they're doing it for selfish gain. They're doing it because they see an opportunity to take advantage of something and feed their own sinful flesh. They're, they're, they're wrecking families. They're destroying the, 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 the fundamental faith that these young Christians have in Crete because they see an opportunity to make much of themselves, to gain something selfishly from it, or sordid gain, as some of your translations will say. And we have to look at these are wolves. Again, the same, he uses the same term, wolves, that Jesus used talking to the people also. They're wolves because, again, the wolves are the enemy of the sheep. They're the predator of the sheep. They feed off of the sheep. So it is the elder's job is what is being told to do. You have to silence these. You have to make them quiet because this is what's happening. If we look at the verses from Acts, these fierce wolves, they're using the flock for their own selfish benefits. These false prophets and teachers are deceiving and teaching false doctrines for selfish gain. This is a direct contradiction of one of the very requirements in eldership from verse 7 in Titus. What does it say in verse 7? It says, For an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or what? Greedy for gain. This is a selfless, selfless serving position. This must be something that the man is doing to serve and protect the flock. And it's not glamorous, as Phil said. He's going to smell like the sheep. You can't protect the sheep without ever getting in them and getting in there with them and protecting them, getting his arms around them. This is, this is a vital, vital job requirement. I do want to... Um, as I was thinking about questions that can be asked, you've heard me say before, I like to, when I'm thinking about this, think of things that might be misconceptions of it. So what could we say? Well, how do we d identify selfish gain? Because isn't it okay for, a, for an elder or a vocational elder to make money from teaching the Word of God? 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should what? Get their living by the gospel. So we can't say it's wrong for someone to take money for preaching the gospel. Paul said it's it's, it's, it's logical. It's not wrong at all for there to be a vocational elder, to be a vocational pastor, for you to have a career elder, for him to make his living from the Word. But what I will submit for your humble consideration, and you think and wrestle over this, I think this is a dangerous position. I think this is something that has to be very, very well attended to and paid attention to and cared for. And I submit this based on the fact if we read now, if we zoom out from 1 Corinthians 9, 14, let's read the verses before and right after it. So again, if you don't mind flipping over 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
we're going to read what Paul says before and after verse 14. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 15, Paul says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So stopping right there. So Paul is saying, we're pouring into y'all. We're working. Is it wrong for us to gain some material benefit from that? What does he say in verse 12? He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? But then nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are implored in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I, Paul, have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me, my, me of my ground for boasting. Again, praise God for the gift of vocational pastors, for this calling that some men are called to a lifelong service of vocational ministry. Praise the Lord. Amen. These are vital. These, th- this is a gift from the Lord. But as my family probably gets tired of hearing me say, any good gift from God put in the hands of sinful men can be what? Can be corrupted, can be used for evil. What God means for good, man can fully use for evil. And I think this office is something that has to be protected. The vocational elder's calling must be to shepherd the flock of God through diligent and hard work, not to have an easy job or make the most money he can make, For your consideration, again, I would submit on this topic, it's clearly not wrong for there to be career or lifelong pastors, elders. It's a good thing. Praise the Lord, and we thank Him for it. But it should not be, but I'm sorry, but it should not be the fruit of His desire to make a lot of money. It should not be the fruit of His desire to gain for Himself. I don't know many shepherds that say, good shepherds that say, I want to get a a lot of sheep because they're going to do things for me. You, anybody that's taking care of sheep, as Phil talked about our family, like sheep don't really provide you a lot of payoff. You're just there protecting them. You're to care for them and you're to keep them safe. If you're thinking, I'm going to do this so that I can get from it, I'd submit to you that's not the heart of an elder. And that would be, we, we can go through the qualifications again, but we've done that for several weeks now. The desire must be rooted in selflessness and a desire to protect the people because of this pro- problem that is coming. False teachers dressed in sheep's clothing, but in inwardly are ravenous wolves. If we look also um, at Acts chapter 20, We've already looked at that, but what does Paul say in what we just read? He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these things, hand minist- know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you, I love this part, I know all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who he, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is the exact opposite of a desire for selfish gain. 
If we are seeking to serve, it leaves less and less room for the desire to serve self. If we are seeking to serve and protect others, it leaves less time to think about how we can advance our own sinful agendas. The vocational elder's calling must be to shepherd the flock of God through diligent and hard work. An elder must also be hardworking. We've talked about they must be imitatable. Um, As we've gone through the uh, qualifications earlier in our previous verses, the man must be hardworking. If he's not hardworking, then how in the world are we to trust that he's going to do hard jobs like this, like rebuking false teachers who obviously have no problem positioning themselves in the church of Crete for their own selfish gain? They're upsetting families. A man who is not willing to work hard, do we practically think he is going to walk up and oppose these men? Must be a hardworking man who through, seeks the glory of God through his work and his efforts. Looking again at our text in verses 10 through 11, we see what this is based on in this specific issue that we're dealing with in Crete. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. They're upsetting whole families. In our text, I believe the specific problem that Paul is addressing here and telling Titus to prepare for is the problem with these Jewish teaching Christians in Crete or false teachers in Crete. They're, Blake and I talked about this yesterday, we can't take, a, I don't believe we can take a dogmatic stance on it, but I think we can conclude fairly safely that the issue that they are dealing with and what they're enforcing on the people is Jewish tradition as it pertains to maybe some dietary requirements. Obviously, we know it's Jewish tradition because he says of the circumcision party, he's referring to Jewish leaders. And then he even goes so far as later in verse 14 the Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. So obviously what we, I speculate is happening is something similar to what we've seen in other uh, illustrations and examples in the New Testament. They're maybe telling these Christians, you have to, yes, we understand Christ is risen and all, but you still can't eat this, or you still got to do this, or you've still got to do this old covenant, Old Testament tradition or follow these commands. I don't want to be too speculative, but obviously they're requiring something of them that benefits them because they're gaining from it. So, again, we have to look at what is happening. It's it's a branch of the circumcision party that's upsetting these families by requiring more from them than the gospel requires. It's something in addition to repentance and faith. And that's what Paul is telling Titus. He's got to stand on guard for and rebuke this. We conclude that these are Jewish and fa- these are Jewish false teachers enforcing Jewish myths on the Christians in Crete for their own selfish gain or agenda. And we see this happening and we see the effects of it. And that brings us to the same problem that we're seeing today. It's not uncommon for us to see pastors, um, teachers, preachers requiring stuff, seeing their own flock as a means to an end. What we, not what I can do to serve the flock, not what I can do to protect the household of God, but what can I get out of the household of God? So that brings us to, again, the problem we face today is the same problem that they faced in Crete, the same problem that has been present probably since the church was established and has not taken a break from it. So what, again, is the solution? We see the problem here. We see false teachers using God's people for their own selfish agendas. But praise God, he does not just point out a problem. He gives us a solution. What is the solution? The solution I submit to you today, based on our text, is we need biblically qualified men who are willing to protect the flock of God 
Also known, obviously, the flock of God, synonymous for His church. His church that He bought with His blood, with His sacrifice, for His glory, against this false teaching. If we look at verse 11, these false teachers in the church must be silenced. It's not enough to understand that they're teaching falsely, but what does Paul command Titus? In a very, very sharp verse, he says, they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This has to be done by the elders, and why it's so important is it's endangering the families in the church of God. It is putting these families in jeopardy. Obviously, very quickly, want to say it's not jeopardizing anyone that was, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, all that the Father has given to the Son, He will not lose one. The perseverance of the saints, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. So this is not jeopardizing their salvation. That was established before the foundation of the earth by, by God and by God alone. But we see it causing turmoil in these families. We see it, and we see obviously other biblical examples of people's faith being made shipwreck. So again, this is something that is causing peril and turmoil in the church of Crete and what Paul is uh, instructing Titus to do to address that. I do not believe it is coincidence that this instruction follows verse 9, which Phil preached on last week. Again, what does verse 9 say if we look up one verse? says the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In order for an elder to do what is commanded in verse 11, very clearly silencing them, first and foremost, what? He must be able to do what? Identify the false teaching. Cannot be expected to silence it if he doesn't know what they're saying is false in and of itself. He must be in His Word. The elder must be in the Word of God. He cannot be expected to silence false teaching if he can't clearly and quickly identify it, and then what? Correct it. Just as he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if you are sitting in a church service and the preacher says something that is not correct, not, not just an opinion, but something that's in contradiction to the Bible, the elder has to be able to A, say why that's false, but B, give a defense for it. You can't just say, I don't think that's right. That's not biblical. You have to be able to point to Scripture and what you're basing that on. You can't silence someone for saying something you can't refute or, as Peter says, give a defense for. If I hear something or if an elder is talking to a church member and the church member says something that they he or she has heard in a sermon online or, or seen on television and the elder hears it and thinks, I don't think that's right. You've got, he's got to be in his word so he can say, brother, sister, that's, let me, let's talk about that a little bit more. Why do you think that? Well, have you thought about that in light of these verses? Can I give a defense with gentleness and respect, a defense to rebuke that or to correct that? Again, there's, there's different action. If you're talking to the brother or sister who is being misguided, there's a much softer tone. You don't have to silence them. You interact with them and you teach them. If it's the false teacher teaching it, 
you're to, the elder is called to silence them, to stop that. It's not to continue. We must hold fast to the gospel. We must be able to defend it. False teachers, one specific thing that I thought of as I was preparing this, I heard a pastor, I told Blake this yesterday, I cannot remember definitively, if I'm remembering him right, I can see him in the interview, so I'm not going to say his name, but a prominent modern-day pastor asked the question and says, you know, what if, what if we found out that Mary was not a virgin? What if we found out that Mary actually had had a husband? Would it change our belief system? Would we, you know, and, and he was spinning it in a way that, well, that shouldn't, that shouldn't upset your faith. We still believe in Jesus. And again, it's that despicable false teaching of he's, he's got enough truth in there to sound, we do still believe in Jesus. Our, our faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. But if we're not in our Bibles and if the elders are not teaching truth, why is that question specifically? Because when I heard it myself, I thought, let me think about that. But then we get into the fact if if Mary was conceived if Mary, if Jesus was conceived of the seed of Adam, then we have all kinds of theological problems with the virgin birth, what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, all of this. So I thought about that specifically because as I'm watching this guy say this in just such a such a charismatic way, I thought, man, so many people could fall. I, I mean, I was pressed to start examining. Well, man, is that a fundamental of the faith? Is that something I'm being too too dogmatic on or too rigid on? And what if that's not true? We cannot know and identify these things if we are not studying the Bible. And we cannot know that if, if elders are not calling that out. So, again, we took a little sidebar. It's crucial to our faith of the virgin birth. We want to talk about that later. We can. It's not the time or place right now. But if that question is something you have, please talk to to someone, Blake, Phil, myself, anybody, because again, that is something that is one of the many things that you'll see false teachers do is they'll take so much truth and then they'll just insert a question or just turn it just one degree. But as we've talked about before, if every hundred yards you're walking on a straight path, you turn, take one step to the right, go another hundred yards, sooner or later, you're going to be walking in the wrong direction. And that's what happens. Just going back to the original false teacher, Satan in the Garden of Eden. Satan told them enough truth, so much truth that God even replies to, he says, you won't certainly die. Your eyes will be open. You'll be made like God to know right from wrong. Half that was true. God even said, he said, the man's eyes has been opened. He knows now good and evil, just like we being the Trinity. But what he lied to him about was they did start to surely die. That's what a false teacher does. Again, Vody Bauckham said, he goes, you will not see a false teacher across the street from your church picketing saying God's a liar. He said, you're going to find the false teachers leading worship. You're going to find them in the front row leading choir. You're going to find them because that's where you can do the most damage. So that's what we have to be on lookout for. And again, I go back to our text, not, not Blake, Phil, and my agenda, but what the Bible teaches. I believe the solution to this is biblically qualified appointed elders protecting the flock of God. These false teachers will turn the gospel on a dime for their own selfish gain. And as we said, this is God's church. This is not, this is, he suffered and died for his people. He didn't do that to leave us wandering aimlessly, hoping to figure out how to do church life, hoping to figure out how to protect the flock. Christ went to the cross and bore the full wrath of God for all of his children, for all of eternity. 
and bought back a people for his own possession, as we'll see through Titus, zealous for good works. And he didn't do it then just to leave us. He gave us instructions clearly about how we are to live and how we are to be sanctified and become more like him by his work and the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel has done too much for us to transform us, to change us, and to make us the bride of Christ to leave us wandering aimlessly in the desert. We have a clear instruction and clear lamp for our feet in the Word of God. We must be in it. We read this verse in Sunday school this morning. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the reality of the tragedy when you hear, and, and, and you'll hear this sometimes, you'll hear somebody say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian so long, and you know, what are you reading your Bible? I don't really read my Bible. Now again, I'm not going to stand before you and add to the work of Christ. I'm not saying that means someone's not a Christian. But it was, it's similar, and I put it in the same category. It's going to be hard for me to convince my wife I love her if I never see her talk to her, engage with her, listen to her, take an interest in her. If I never show her a desire to be with her, then do my actions, as we've talked about here, do they, do they nullify my claim? If I, am, if I love the Lord, if I want to look like Him, if I want to look like His Son, but I don't care about His Word, about the Scripture that's breathed out by Him and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction and training in righteousness, that I may be complete and equipped for every good work, then what do I base it on? What am I basing on the fact that the fact or the claim that I love the Lord? It, it loses its credibility if we're devoid of his teaching and his instruction. And also back to the text here that we're focused on this morning, it will completely incapacitate us to identify the ability to be able to identify false teaching. We have to know right teaching in order to identify false teaching. Verses 11 and 13 here in our text says, again reading, says, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. The elder is also commanded to silence false teachers. So it's not just simply to identify false teaching, but it is to silence them. Edmund Burke, I wrote this quote, I've thought about this many, many times. Um, he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for what? Good men to stand by and do nothing. I submit to you in the biblical context from taking that quote, the only thing that it takes for false teachers to triumph in the church of God is biblically qualified men to stand by and do nothing. Depending on your translation, the ESV says reprove. Um, I'm sorry, the NASB says reprove. The ESV says rebuke. It's the same thing. It is to call, correct, call for correction, call for um, rebuke, rebuttal, and then set forth right in its place. So that's what we are seeing that is commanded for the elder to do. This is a problem. This is the solution. 
We don't want to miss the example of God's grace here also. This is something that I asked um, ask Blake and Phil about this week. In verse, let's see, in verse 13, it says, This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. This is something I would beg for you to, to wrestle over, think over, and study for yourself because I, I was very unclear on it. And as Blake and I talked about yesterday, I, I still don't feel comfortable to take a just a, an emphatic stance, but I'll tell you where we landed on this. My question was, I said, who is the them in verse 13 that he's referring to? Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Because I thought at first, and for a long time, I thought the them is the people. The them, because he's, if you follow the verse out, it says that they may be sound in the faith. The them is the Christians in Crete who are subject to this false teaching. But after study, after discussion, what I would submit to you for thinking, and the point that I'll, I'll share the point of why this is important for us, I submit to you the them is actually the false teachers. Because Paul is saying rebuke them sharply. A couple of things. I don't think his instruction would be to rebuke the people that sharply. I think, again, that would be you need to teach them. You need to, it's, it's important, but you don't have to rebuke them as sharply because they're being taught wrong. And also that they may be sound in the faith. We see God's mercy here that he's even calling Paul and the elders in Titus to rebuke these false teachers because, as Blake and I talked about yesterday, I do think there are two categories of false teachers, even in our text here and certainly in what we see in the world today. The false teacher who knows he's the false teacher, who says, this is what I'm going to do because I see opportunity. I can make money. I can have people do what I want them to do. I can be thought of. I can be on television. I can be everything I want to be. And this whole Christianity thing is nothing more but a, than a means to an end. And then I think there's also the category for the false teacher who possibly is actually a believer and just got some stuff wrong. And I base that on the text here that we're looking at. He says, rebuke them sharply in verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. We see examples in Scripture. We see Apollos in Acts where he was teaching not wrong, but just incomplete doctrine. And Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and, and continued to teach him. As Phil said before, he's like, you know, we're all still learning. We think we're right about stuff. Otherwise, I don't hold any opinion near and dear to me that I'm aware of to be incorrect. Why have an opinion if it's not the right one? I, I can stand before you this morning and say, I don't know of anything that I believe in my heart that I know to be incorrect. But I also know I am a far from perfect man, so I know I'm wrong about stuff. So again, I hope that as that happens and as any opportunity that I have to preach, y'all y'all hear me say a lot of times, test these things for yourselves. If the elder is doing his job, if the church leaders are doing their jobs, they're equipping the people of God to test these things for themselves. Don't believe something that me or Blake or Phil or any pastor says to you that you can't substantiate with the Word of God. Any elder stands, an elder stands on authority insofar as he stands on the Word of God and on the truth of God's Word. An elder has no authority that is not rooted in Scripture. So we must be able to identify these truths and we must be able to, to identify them. And when we see something, if we see someone else struggling with their own truths, with their own doctrines, correct them as we read earlier, giving them the, for the reason or hope yet do it with the gentleness and respect. 
So again, in in our text for this morning, I do believe and submit for your consideration and for you to wrestle over that some of these teachers were teaching the people wrongly, but with a sincere heart. And Paul even tells Titus, you correct them that they get straightened out and are sound in the faith. And what an act of, what a display of God's mercy and His grace to save even the false teacher, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. It is a very, very easy thing. It is a far easier thing to ignore false teaching and and to avoid controversy, but that does not make it okay. So many times we can hear someone say something and think, man, I don't think they're right about that. Uh, and, And that's a big deal. They really think that? And we say it's the loving thing. Well, judge not lest ye not be judged. And, and I'm just, it's not going to be loving for me to tell them they're wrong about this. But if again, I've used this exa- example before. If, if Paul was, when he was six years old, if he was playing in the street and he was having the time of his life, best, he had everything set up the way he wanted. And I see a semi coming towards him. Me telling Paul, get out of the street, get your toys, get out of the street is going to upset him at that time because he can't see the semi. Do I want to upset him or do I want to let him continue to play and then let the semi-plow through him? And that's a silly analogy, but when we hear people say things that are false and contrary to sound doctrine and we don't correct it, we don't do it with gentleness and love and say, brother, sister, here's what the Bible says. Talk to me about why you think that. And let's look through the scriptures together and say and see what the Bible teaches we can say it's out of love, but I say it's out of apathy that we don't. And I will stand before you. I am the, probably the most guilty of anyone in this room of doing that. I don't, it, it overwhelms me at the thought of just having to confront people and correct people with those things. And I confess before you all publicly, it's apathy. It's selfishness. I don't want to feel awkward. I don't want them to look at me and think, well, who are you? And, and this not come across right. But it's not out of love that I'm ignoring it. It's out of selfishness and my own comfort. Because we're called to anyone who asks us, give us, give them a reason for our hope that is in us and to do it with gentleness and respect. In the ESV study Bible, as I was studying over this, moving to, to the next point before our application, in verse 12, I wondered about this because this seemed a little bit um, unusual to me, verse 12. Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I thought, I I was curious why that was in there, and I thought this was helpful, so I just took a picture of it, and I wanted to read this because it really helped answer this for me. And this is commentary, so hold it um, against Scripture. But he says, the writer here says, Crete was was proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian... Polybius wrote that it was almost impossible to impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero also stated moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. He says that the phrase that Paul used, "prophet of their own," Paul wisely does not criticize the decadence of Crete society. Uh, Cretan society directly, but quotes rather a Cretan author instead and quickly agrees with them. This testimony is true. 
Of course, Paul means this as a generalization, not necessarily of every single inhabitant of Crete, but rather as a pointing to the society that they're living in. So I, I, that helps shine some light on it for me that why is Paul quoting a, a Cretan prophet? It's, he's, he's simply saying, look, one of your own people said this about you. Titus, this is what you're dealing with. These are these evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Even the word glutton to me was really eye-opening as we look at it in the context because they're selfish for gain. They're going to lie. They're going to cheat. They're evil beasts. They'll rip you apart if it suits them. And rather than Paul writing this to them and upsetting them saying, look, this is what your own people say about the town you're in. And we've all heard Cretans is never, I've never heard someone be called a Cretan and it be complimentary, even in today's society. So th that helped me deal with, um, interact with verse 13 a little bit, or I'm sorry, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul does, though, as soon as that quotation is ended, says this testimony is true, and therefore his counsel is, therefore rebuke them. And again, the, I've landed on the fact that I believe the them there is actually the false teachers. Rebuke them sharply. And maybe, and those of them that are actual believers that are just in error may be sound in the faith and no longer continue to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Blake brought up the point yesterday when we were discussing this. Who, who else got it wrong in Scripture on this very same topic? Peter. Peter. One of the, who Jesus said he was going to build his church on, what? When he started getting a little pressure and felt like he was off, Paul had to oppose him because of the circumcision party, because Peter was still thinking in that old Jewish mindset. Clearly, we all believe Peter to be a Christian, and Paul rebuked him to his face and corrected that behavior. So again, humbly and open to rebuttal, I submit that the them here is... He is instructing Titus, Paul is instructing Titus, you correct false teachers for two reasons. One, to protect the flock of God. That's non-negotiable. You silence them and you stop them from upsetting families. And two, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith and they'll stop devoting themselves to Jewish myths. They'll stop subjecting them to the very thing that they're putting on other people that is causing other people harm also. So, as we move into the point of how do we apply this, okay? Because you could say, okay, well, this is what the elders supposed to do. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this if we're not elders, if we have no aspiration to be elders? For our own sakes, first and foremost, we must know sound teaching in order to be able to identify false teaching. Whether you're an elder or not, whether you ever aspire to be an elder, you must be able to identify false teaching to protect your own self from it. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, study our Bibles. Heed this warning and let this never be true of us. I read that verse and it, it terrifies me to think of ever finding myself in that position where the time has come when I, we won't endure sound teaching, but I just want people to make me feel good about myself. 
there's no da more dangerous place to be. John Piper said, the, if we look at the um, example of Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, she comes, she's bringing water, Jesus asks for a drink, and does anybody remember that story? Jesus said, told her what? Go home and get your husband. She said, sir, I don't have a husband. He said, you've answered correctly. The man you're with right now isn't your own husband. Jesus knew all that about her. Jesus could have told her what a good job she was doing getting water. She, he could have complimented her. He could have been loving. But Jesus brought her to confession for the, for the sin in her life. And she ended up going back and telling everyone about what this man had told her about herself and what he did for her and the truth of forgiveness and redemption that he told her. We've got to study our Bibles. Let it not be true or spoken of us that we just want people to tickle our ears and make us feel good about ourselves. Because all good feelings come to an end. The truth of God's Word lasts forever. Ephesians 4, 11-16 says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried along by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, and with and which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brother or sister, if we are in Christ, if we are part of Christ's church, we have a responsibility to our own brothers and sisters to do what we just read, to know our Bibles, to study our Bibles, so that we can speak the truth and love to our brothers and sisters. We are all to grow into maturity and speak the truth to one another, not just the elders. You, you, you've heard me say before, as we were going through the point of the, the text earlier about the, multi, uh, the plurality of elders. Brothers and sisters, I beg, I, I don't trust myself to get it right. I need brothers and sisters that will call me to account. I need to be able to ask my wife, am I thinking about this right? Where am I wrong? Help me to see more clearly what I'm missing. And if we're not, how am I to help a brother? How am I to help teach my children how to live as God's commanded them to live if I'm not studying God's commandments. When they come to me and ask me a question, Daddy, is it? What if, what if Mary wasn't a virgin? What if I don't know my Bible? How can I help them refute false teaching and identify it and stand on truth? How can I keep my children from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every cunning scheme that False teachers and false preachers are going to try to sell to them on a daily basis. How can we do that? How can we protect ourselves from being caught up in every wind of doctrine? That is a scary verse to me because, again, I'm thinking about God keep us from being tossed to and fro. Keep us from wanting to have our ears tickled and told what we need to make ourselves feel better. I was talking to a dear friend this week about some struggles he's going through and mentioned the concept of therapy. And, you know, so many times, and I'm not trying to take a side 
swerve and, and get off on a tangent, but I said, a lot of modern day therapy wants to sit and tell you it's not your fault, someone else has wronged you, and you know, you're really a good person. That is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the opposite. I can, t- I can lie someone, I can make someone feel as good as they're going to feel and walk them to the door of hell, telling them they're a good person. When what we should do is tell them, brother, you're a wretched sinner just like me. But I can show you the Savior who is a better Savior than you are sinner. And that has to be our desire. That is why it is imperative for these elders to be, to be chained to the Bible, to refute false teaching, to silence false teachers, and to protect their flock by giving them the means to protect themselves. Secondly, how can we apply this? Pray for the elders. Hold them to this standard. It's not an option. It's a job requirement for them. We've gone through the qualifications. We are working to install elders, biblically appointed elders at Grace Bible Church. And as the Lord sees and brings that to pass, our charge as church members is to hold the elders biblically accountable to the biblical qualifications that God did not give us a suggestion, but gave as a command and an instruction. And we're also to pray for the elders. Hebrews 13, 17 through 18 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. That verse, the verbiage right there is the exact opposite of our text here. In the false teachers are doing this for what reason? For sinful or selfish gain. What are the leaders supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be doing it with joy and not groaning because it's implied this would be, if they're doing it that way, it's of no advantage to you. So to state that the opposite, they do it this way, it's an advantage to you, the people. You pray for the elders to serve the flock well because it's an advantage to the people in the flock of God. It's an advantage to the church. The Bible is not silent, praise God, but rather very clear about what God requires of those appointed to shepherd His flock. Christ didn't do all that He did on the cross and on His earthly ministry to purchase His bride, to leave her lost and wandering directionless until he returned. We have instructions. We must endeavor by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of his word to live as we are called, and that includes in his church. It's so sad to see people that will say, you know, we we have to base our lives on Scripture. We have to base our lives on Scripture. Amen and hallelujah. But it's I see so much in our, in our modern society, but we let the church just be handled however sinful men think it should be handled. We can't identify that's happening if we don't study the Bibles and know how it's instructed to be conducted. I'll close with this verse. Because as we've thought about this and we preach, we see that it is imperative for the elders to refute false teaching, to silence false teaching, to protect the flock, so that when someone comes and says, yeah, you believe in the gospel of Christ, you, you believe that Jesus is everything else, but what about this? You, are you doing this? They add something to it. We have to know 
that we should not be subject to Jewish myths or modern myths or whatever myths that add to the work of Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone that we're saved. I believe it was Paul Washer that said, you know, when you're struggling for your assurance, you think about if I stood before God right now and was asked, why should I pardon you? Why should I let you into heaven? If our answer starts with I, we stand condemned. We should bow our heads humbly and thankfully and point to Christ and say that's why, He's why, He's the only reason that someone like me would ever fit where you are, holy God. And praise God that He gives us this book that I take for granted. And it, you all have heard, most of you have heard me say this by now. It embarrasses me. It makes me sad that I have to discipline myself to study the Bible. Why don't I want to all the time? Why don't I want to open up the Word of God who sustains me right now by the power of His Word? Why do I have to discipline myself? Because I'm still a sinful man, saved by grace. If I thought about what this last verse I'm going to share is, if I held fast to this, it's more of an indictment of how sinful our flesh really is and how much we are saved from it by God's grace and how much work the Holy Spirit has to do in each and every one of us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Phil's talked about, used a hunting analogy. Paul and I love to hunt. And when you go out in the morning, what's the most valuable thing to someone walking aimlessly in the dark is your flashlight. And I've thought about that so many times when he and I go and it is pitch black where the, it's cloudy or there's no moon and you cannot see the hand in front of your face. When we walk through life not using the Bible, that's what we're doing. We're hoping to get where we are trying to get, hoping not to run into something or end up somewhere where we don't need to be. It's not just for the elders to hold firm to the trustworthy of what is taught. It's They need to be teaching the people to do that themselves so that you can hold the elders accountable, so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so that you don't fall uh to fall to the schemes of cunning men who are using you for selfish gain. That is the elders, I believe, as we continue to go through Titus, that is a key objective of the elders. And as I said to Blake yesterday, I think going back to our sermon about the plurality, it's why it's not to be trusted to any one man. It's too big. No, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to say things wrong. You need elders holding elders accountable. You need elders teaching the people so that the people can hold the elders accountable. And the accountability is all rooted in Scripture. I'm going to pray for us. Are we saying it? So we'll, I'll pray and we'll close. As Blake said, if, y'all have, if anyone needs anything, please reach out. If you know of a family member in need, we're thankful to be here and to serve and worship with you each and every week. Thank you all for coming. I'll pray and dismiss. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. And Lord, even that, we love You because You have first loved us, Father. I thank You for that. I, Lord, as, as Peter said, Lord, when he was confronted with who Christ is, depart from me. Like We don't fit where You are, Lord, apart from Christ, but praise be to Your name that because of Christ You have made us once enemies, Your children, Lord. You have grafted us in. You've seated us at your table as children beloved, adopted in Christ. 
We hold firm to these truths, Lord, because of your word. We have our eyes open because of your spirit. And we have hope and salvation because of your son, Father. We thank you for Christ. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would, Lord, raise up your bride at Grace Bible Church, Father. May we be a people committed to the truth of your word. May we stand on your word and your word alone, Father. May we encourage one another. May we speak the truth in love to one another. May we do it with gentleness and respect. Give us the courage to speak truth to those around us, Lord, to those that we love, to those that we work with, to our family, our friends, God. Give us strength by your Spirit to not be silent because of shyness or embarrassment or fear of rejection, Father. I confess that to you here publicly, Lord. I miss so many opportunities. I sin against you by not saying the things I ought to say so many times, and I'm sorry. Help us, Lord, to be more like Christ who called his people to repentance, who loved them enough to call them to confession of what needs to be confessed in our lives. God, I thank you. May we be a confessing people. May we be a people that's rooted in truth. May our hearts be united together in Christ, Father. Lord, draw us all closer to one another as you draw each one of us closer to yourself. Please let us depart from here today and honor you and be lights for you in the world. Help us to seek to be servants. Help us to pray as we ought. Help us to treasure Christ more. And Lord, just be mindful of him and all that we say and do, Father. Thank you for this morning. Let your truth be lifted up and may it remain in anything that has been said or done here, Lord, that was not in agreement with your word. May it perish quickly from our thoughts and minds. And Lord, let just your truth be all that we hold to. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sins, please. And thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.